Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 421st edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming at you on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. This is the place where technology meets entertainment. Today, I've got an interview with a brilliant guy from the UK. His name's Jason Heavens. He's the sole founder and CEO of EPOS Now. This guy is really terrific. And if you're in business... You'll love this interview. It is full of pearls of wisdom. He's a, he, And he's a great guy. Now, Italy's set to become the first country to make climate change education mandatory in public schools. Starting in September 2020, public schools in Italy will have to incorporate 33 hours of climate-related lessons into their annual curriculum. And these lessons are going to be added to existing civics classes. Italy's education minister says it's part of an effort to place the environment and society at the core of everything we learn in school. There will be much more attention to climate change when teaching traditional subjects. The idea being the citizens of the future need to be ready for the climate emergency that is rapidly descending upon us. Now, in the US, not all states have implemented teaching standards that call for lessons on climate science, but about 80% of parents across the country say they support these standards. In Italy, as has happened almost everywhere else in the world, students have joined huge numbers of people in the streets to demonstrate against climate change. And you think about Italy, 85% of Venice is underwater after the worst flooding in 50 years. So the Italians are taking climate change with the seriousness it deserves. Sustainable development will also be taught in classes such as maths, physics and geography. The Education Ministry is working to put climate sciences and sustainability at the centre of the national education model. A group of international experts will help prepare climate curricula. And in 2018, Education Minister Lorenzo Fieromonti was criticised by conservatives for encouraging students to skip classes to attend climate change protests. Meanwhile, in the US, many public schools teach climate science in some capacity, That's largely thanks to Next Generation Science Standards, which is a multi-state effort to raise teaching standards on topics such as evolution and climate change. Since 2013, 19 states have adopted the standards, while 20 other states have developed similar standards based on a framework for K through 12 science education. And of course, California, the leader in all these things, has its own California Next Generation Science Standards. Now, one reason that 
I think something like 12 or 13 states haven't adopted any climate change standards is a lack of federal funding. And also climate change remains remains a politically controversial in the US where the president and his administration believe that climate change is not caused by human behaviour. So there are efforts in some states to make it easier to teach students that humans aren't the primary driver of global warming. It's just cyclical. We should just wait until it changes. Uh, ain't going to happen. Now, recent surveys suggest that 75 to 80% of Americans believe that humans are fueling climate change. An NPR Ipsos poll from April found that more than 80% of parents support the teaching of climate science. A separate poll found that an even higher share of teachers, 86%, also supported teaching climate science. Further, 56% of adults say that protecting the environment should be a top priority for the President and Congress, while 44% say that dealing with global climate change should be a top priority. That without a firm direction from the President and the Administration, the US will continue to lag behind the rest of the world in addressing the perils posed by climate change. Folks, climate change is really serious stuff. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 or 1.8 million daily subscribers and about 34% of them open it every day. It takes just... 30 seconds to a minute and a half every day. Um, we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology. We talk about Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, cryptocurrency. We talk about all those things. And tomorrow's newsletter is why do governments want digital currency? And the answer, of course, is because it will be easier for the governments to man manipulate it. And you're likely to see the first major government-backed digital currency within the next 12 to 18 months. So you want to know more about it? Read about it in tomorrow's Bob Pritchard newsletter. And uh, to get the newsletter, all you have to do is go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. Pretty easy. Now, over the past few years, big businesses from Uber Eats and Grubhub have competed to be the one that builds the biggest food delivery system. But despite backlash related to its tipping policy, DoorDash surpassed both Grubhub and Uber Eats over the past year and is now the do dominant deliverer. Now, if I ask most people, I doubt if they'd say that Door DoorDash was the biggest player in the game. But as of September 2019, DoorDash commands 35% of online food delivery sales, more than Grubhub with about 30%, and Uber Eats at about 20%. Now, Uber Eats seems to make more noise, don't they? They seem to be everywhere. But they're the smallest of the three. They launched in 2013, DoorDash hasn't been around as long as its competitor, say Grubhub, which was launched in 2004, nearly 10 years prior. 
And Postmates, which was launched three years prior in 2011, of course, Uber Eats didn't come along until a little bit after DoorDash in 2014. Now, what DoorDash lacks in experience, it makes up for in cold, hard cash. The food delivery service has about $2 billion in funding since it launched, including a $535 million round in 2018, led by Japanese investment giant SoftBank. There's a big difference because while other delivery businesses focused on expanding their services in major cities, DoorDash doubled down on suburbs in an effort to cater to different demographics. According to Bloomberg, DoorDash operates in 4,000 towns. Uber Eats, on the other hand, only operates in 500 cities. And to better serve the suburbs, DoorDash partnered with almost 90% of the top 100 US restaurant brands, including brands like Chili's, which operate 80% of their locations in the suburbs. The suburbs were good for growth, but they're not necessarily good for the business's bottom line. But while big, the company is still not profitable, like all of them, and, so, and like many other companies that have been turbocharged by investments from SoftBank, DoorDash has prioritised growth over pros- profitability. I'm not sure how smart that is, but everybody's doing it. It's a good point to remember for investors. At some point, you've got to make a profit. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, my guest after the break is Jason Heavens. He's a sole founder and CEO of Epos Now. In 2011, Jason was a bar owner and he was frustrated by the lack of quality electronic point of sale solutions for small businesses. You know, the big big companies have got great point of sale solutions. So not having a background in programming or in software, he created his own and he founded Epos Now, and just a few years later, he's now got over 200 employees and 30,000 customers and $40 million in revenue. And the good thing is he's had no external investment whatsoever. And Jason has just launched Epos Now in the United States. Very smart boy, lovely guy, great to talk to. And uh, this is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Jason in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. 
Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting and successful business people. We've uh, interviewed somewhere around 450 people um, that are leaders in their field from right across the world. And I uh, hope you've been listening because they're the people that you learn off. 98% of startups in the United States fail. And so it's important that you get information right from the mouths of those that succeed. It's extremely difficult to create a successful business. And, you know, most people that start businesses, they've got a pretty good idea on what their product or their service is. They've got that nailed, but they don't have nailed all the rest of the things that you need to have um, in place when you run a business. And initially, you're probably the sole person in it or you've got two people in it and you've got to do everything. You've got to be the accountant. You've got to be the salesperson. You've got to be the HR person. You've got you've got all these roles and that's where most businesses fall down, not because their idea isn't good. So, um, which brings me to mentors. You should make sure when you start a business that you've got some good mentors and, you know, not people that are friends or family that, you know, want to help you but don't have a clue. Get people that have been successful in business who understand how the world works because when you get out there, it's a jungle and it's tough and it's war if you're in a very competitive business and it's really helpful to know what the hell you're doing. Now, Jason Heavens is the sole founder and CEO of EPOS Now. This is a great idea. And in 2011, Jason was a bar owner. He was um, frustrated by the amount of booze he was drinking. No, I just made that up. He was frustrated by the lack of quality electronic point-of-sale solutions that are available to small businesses like he had. So he created his own and he founded EPOS Now with a commitment to delivering to the SME community the same innovations that big businesses had forever. Main Street businesses are under real pressure from online technology businesses, and EPOS Now's mission is to give bricks and mortar businesses the technology they need to compete with the online giants. It is very hard because the online guys have got a lot of advantages, particularly when it comes to costs and efficiency. The mantra being that business owners, no matter how small, should be able to leverage technology to improve their profitability in the same way as the, their corporate competitors, which give, it gives the small businesses the tools they need to compete and succeed. Now, this is the good part. EPOS now has grown to over 200 employees and 30,000 customers and, only 40, and over $40 million in revenue. And that's just in eight years. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And uh, with no external investment, and it's now Eastern England's largest and fastest growing tech scale-up, and it's received frequent rec- recognition all over the place. I've seen, I've seen, I looked up 
um, there are a whole number of um, awards and praises and and they're also in the tech track 100 fastest growing companies. So in pursuit of this mission, Jason has won multiple awards, as I mentioned. He won the IOD Director of the Year, Cloud Entrepreneur of the Year, Great British Retail Entrepreneur of the Year, and he's been honoured with a doctorate from the University of East Anglia. That's all pretty good. I, um, I've only spoken to him on the phone. I'm not sure how old he is. I'll ask him that. But um, that's pretty good. He doesn't sound very old, and that's pretty good, um, pretty good credentials for a young guy. Uh, Jason's currently focused on international expansion in the UK and in the US and is planning to create over 200 new jobs by 2021, as well as his other business ventures and helping future leaders scale up as the entrepreneur in residence at the University of East Anglia. This guy's obviously pretty smart. Well, let's find out how smart he is. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. Hi there, Bob. No pressure then, so hopefully I'll come across smart. <laughs> How old are you? Oh, I'm uh, 36. See, that's pretty young to have such a successful business and to be expanding internationally. That's a that's a bloody good effort. So, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. But I was 28 when I sort of started, so yeah. I was a uh, you know a lot younger when I kind of started, and I feel you know I still feel you know really energetic and really empowered on the mission. So that's good. But yeah, people have said that in the past, but get on a bit now. <laughs> Getting on a bit, yeah. 30, well. <laughs> um, are you smart? Have you got a technology background? Um, I wouldn't say I was smart, no. I, I, I don't believe in the smart mantra. I, I, I think um, I'm personally in the camp of drive. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm pretty motivated. And what I tend to look for is when I employ like future leaders or I look for people who can make a difference, I look for people who are really passionate and driven and motivated because I think, I think you know, God-given smarts, I think personally, I mean, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but personally, I think you know, hard work and drive and ambition really trumps all. That's no. my personal belief. Yeah, I agree. So why did you decide to start EPOS now? So w- what was the hardest part about being a bar owner and not having access to? Um, well, it kind of actually has more in time. When, when you said you wanted a, you was frustrated because he was drinking too much. It kind of resonated with me. Like maybe that, maybe that I was joking. <laughs> no, I know, I know you were. But actually, saying that, part and parcel of right when you run a bar, I don't know if you know, but obviously you do get tied up. You do get tied into that kind of thing. And, and being able to run a business is about getting healthy distance away. Yeah. And um, and kind of running a bar and starting a bar is probably you know every guy's dream and every person's dream. It's really exciting to have your own business. But I guess part of it was trying to get some distance away and thinking, right, how can I um, how can I make this business run when I'm not there? And and because of, because my background was originally in sales, I thought to myself, well, there must be a solution out there for you know for someone who just needs to get a bit of space and make it run itself. And and there wasn't anything really in that marketplace. And the first thing was about sales and marketing. So I, you, you, I don't know if you know about, obviously you probably do, about the Google AdWord platform. Yes. Um, yeah, at the time, right, no one was a, when I researched the product, so I quickly put the product in Google and I noticed that no one, like in the whole of the UK, was AdWording for this type of product POS system. And then I looked into it in more detail and I realized that 
this product wasn't really aimed at the market that I was sort of eight, eight, nine years ago. It wasn't aimed for smaller sole traders. It was really only aimed for larger companies. Yeah. You know, the technology is really expensive and it was done, uh, it was sold through the dealer market and it was sold with very high margins. And um, that's kind of where the idea from EPOS now was born. Um, it was born to, you know, offer a similar technology for businesses like myself you know, who needed access to that technology. Yeah. So did you did you sketch it all out and work out exactly what you needed and then bring in somebody to do it, or did you do it yourself, or how did, how did that work? Do you know what? I wish I did, but I <laughs> wish I did, and it wasn't, it wasn't that simple, right? And going back to the drive and ambition thing, right, I, I knew I conceptually had something, right? So it was just a concept. You know, yeah. it wasn't like we were, you know, we weren't born in San Francisco. I was born in, I'm in Norwich, which is like two hours out of London. There's like a population of 200,000. Right? Right. Yeah. There wasn't any VCs. There wasn't any understanding of any inside sales or anything like that. But what, what we kind of, I kind of figured out was, hey, um, if, I'm buy, if I buy hardware, they're, they're selling this unit for like 15, 16 grand or whatever. Yeah. And yep. of that unit, there was a hardware element, which is basically a touchscreen computer. And me, my, my knowledge, I had no software knowledge at the time. So I thought, hey, how do I get one of these things that's a bit cheaper? So that's when, um, that's when I traveled to China at the time. And um, uh-huh. obviously, you know, with the tariffs and stuff right now, that's probably not you know, the best advice. But back then, there wasn't, so it was good. Yeah. And we went there and, um, well, I went over there and basically managed to build a touchscreen PC for sort of sub $300, $400. Yep. And then I bought that back. And that was really, um, and that that was, and then what I did then was I I thought right I've got my system I've got a way to sell it like over the internet. No yeah. one was selling it over the internet, and everyone was selling it with loads of professional fees. And I thought to myself, why does a customer want to pay for all these fees? They just don't. They just want to pay for the product, right? Sure. So I said, well, I'll charge I'll charge them for the product, and then I bought someone else's software, like another provider's software, and packaged it together, and then sold it over the internet. And that, that's where it started. You didn't need any software knowledge, no knowledge, really. Just went and sourced the product, found a way to sell it, and then bought it back into the UK. And that was how it all started, really. It wasn't like I had a master plan. I didn't massively know what I was doing. I just knew that if I bought something for X and I sold it for X, you know, that would be good business. And yeah. it would help customers who were like me who needed a product. That's brilliant. I love it. China's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's unbelievable what you can find there and what you can get produced for. I've got a, a product at the moment being um, uh, developed in China and the difference in price between what you can do direct uh, and what you pay in America retail is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, it's outstanding. And, and the, oh. great, the great thing about finding, finding ideas like that is, you know, People, you know, my advice to any entrepreneurs, and that's what the show's about is, you know, don't procrastinate. If you've got an idea, you don't have to spend loads of money. You know, you know, you can go there if you like, or go to the Canton Fair, or you can look at Alibaba, or you can look at other countries to import. Yep. You know, find your product, and like you say, you can you can really explore. You don't need a great amount of capital to really start a business. Now, I started this on my savings. I never took outside capital, really? so. It wasn't, it wasn't an expensive business to do. And the only reason, right, we built the software was because I bought, five, I bought some licenses off a supplier and then um, I used the internet and, 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 and you t- turned the top of the bar into a, like an office. We sat on beer barrels and stuff, right? 
Yeah. And we sold so many of this stuff that we sold 500 licenses in the first six or seven months. We'd had 500 customers. Wow. And I went to the software company that I bought it off and said, hey, I need another 500 licenses. And they said, I think we've got a problem. And I was like, what's your problem? They go, you've sold 500 licenses, yeah, in six months. I was like, yep. And they go, well, we've sold 400 licenses. We've been going 25 years. <laughs> oh, shit. And I was like, I was like oh. Uh, and they go, um, we don't want to sell you any more software. So I went around the whole UK trying to find another provider. And they said, look, what you're doing is wrong. You know, you need to be charging seven or eight grand or, or 17 grand for this stuff. And you need to sell it with professional services. You know, we don't believe what you're doing is right. So I only started building the software because no one would sell me any because we really displaced an industry in the UK. Jeez. That's disgraceful, isn't it? When you think about it, it's... <laughs> No wonder, no wonder that businesses are being disrupted because all the legacy businesses, they've got away with far too much for far too long and it's about time they're brought down to earth. Now, that's great. I love that. Um, who wants to pay? Who wants to pay for anything they don't get value from? Sure. That old method of you having to pay thousands and thousands of pounds or dollars right, for onboarding or professional services... You know, who really wants to pay for that because the customer doesn't get any value? Yeah. And that's where you really see a lot of disruption. If you go back years, people used to pay that kind of stuff for photocopiers and mobile phones. Yeah. Now, all of those industries, you know, are getting disruptive. However, if you can, and this is for the listeners out there, if you can find an industry and you can find one where there's loads of professional services and you can solve it with a software product, you know, you could be on something quite good there. Yeah. So... How do you, how does it help level the playing field? Obviously, there's a massive saving in co in in expenditure, and it it, it uh, puts the product in the in the realm of the small business. But um, what's the big advantage for a small business of using your POS? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, right? So. When, when we built the product, so, we, so I learned to build that business, the whole business and bootstrap, you know, up to hundreds of employees and all around the world. And I think, how did I, what did I learn along the way and how can I breathe that life into the product? And, and when you start a business, an online business, you understand about your cost per acquisition. So yeah. building an inside marketing funnel was quite simple, really. You understand how many searches are there, that's your impressions. Yeah. How many of those searches you can deliver to your landing page. Yep. Yeah. You know, that, that's your click-through rate and then your conversions on your landing page. So pretty much. And then once once that customer converts, that's how much it costs to win that customer. Sure. And then you've got the lifetime value. Now, how much can you, you know, how much can you um, really manage that customer over the lifetime and how much value can you generate for and from that customer? Yep. So that's how, that's how, that's how bigger businesses think. So think about Amazon, right? They can sell you a product. And they don't have to make money for years because they can sell analytics, data, they can sell payments, sure. they can sell Amazon Prime, Amazon Video. They commercialize your data in so many ways and they never, ever have to make money on you, right, at all. So their LTV is off the chart. Now, how can the customers compete? And that's where we, our platform allows them to think and act like a technology business. So, for example, we've got integrations with Zero, Sage, QuickBooks, so the customer can have real-time profit and loss. Yes. Therefore, having, having having all their real-time profit and loss, so they can see how they've done in the moment in the day. They can integrate them with the enterprise-level so software like Shopify, drag-and-drop yep. integration. Yep. They can integrate with big commerce, um, and they can integrate with 20 other loyalty platforms to keep the customer returning. Yep. So it's about using EPOS now as the platform for success 
and allowing this ecosystem to give them access to all of the latest tools and allowing the processes to make them think like a technology business. So imagine a restaurant deploying EPOS now. They use the cash register. Yeah. They can deploy that and they can have delivery integration or Uber Eats integration straight away. They can have online table ordering immediately. They can have review management to ensure that they're keeping their profile clean and online. You know, and they can then have percentage of table adoption and they can even have online ordering and table ordering so people can order from their mobile. You know, it gives their business a completely new breath of life. And that's yep. what it's about, really, is about having access to all that power enterprise technology that was previously just reserved for you know companies for like Amazon. Guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you think about it, right. When, um, if you go to a coffee shop and you go to a chain, the reason why it works is because you come to that town and city, you know, you're going to get a uniform experience, but the, the stock arrives in the morning, doesn't it? Right. And then the, I, they get the iPad, it tells them what to do, what to switch off, what to turn on. And then everything kind of arrives and the till automatically sets the pricing for them. You, know, you switch that to the sole trader. You know, they've got up late, their alarm's going off, they've got to do the skill, school run, they chuck their kids at school. You know, they run to the cafe, there's customers waiting outside. You know, they open the fridge, they run out of milk, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. They, they spend so much time running their business. How yeah. can they be strategic, right? That's where we come in. So you've got low stock orders. So we'll, we'll notify them via email, via text when they're running out of items. They can even dynamically use gamification for their rotor. So the rotor should do it itself. You know who the highest performing staff are. are. Yeah. So obviously, you know, making sure those rotors dynamically do that. It's so all those heavy lifting and all that task automization. You know, we aim to bring that totally away from the customer. So, the cust so our customers can focus on delivering a great experience with their local knowledge. And that's where our customers can win out and level the playing field. So it's, it's completely leveling the playing field with this type of technology. Now, bricks and mortar don't think like technology businesses. No, they you know, those days, Those days of selling a pair of shoes, buying a pair of shoes for 20 quid and selling it for 50, and then making money at that moment, those days are gone, right? We've got VC companies now that can blow millions and millions to win that customers on those products. Yes. Yeah, you need to, we need to offer customers a, a personalized experience, right? And understand that winning that customer and managing them and making, you know, a, a longstanding loyal relationship over time to generate revenue over time, that's where you win out. And that's why the businesses are shutting on the high street so much. Yep. It's because they're still selling a product, right? In an LTV and cost per acquisition world. And they're selling, they're selling an item to get a profit now and they're not thinking. You know, it's interesting you mentioned lifetime customer value. I very, very, very seldom hear anybody that's in a small business um, talking about lifetime customer value. And yet that's what keeps people like Amazon, etc. alive. And who knows whether they'll make a profit, but they project they'll make a profit on their customers in 20x years. How do you compete in an environment where your competitors don't have to make money on that sale for 20 years? And that's when they'll finally commercialize it. Yeah. You know, that's why you have to think faster and you have to use the same kind of technology and work smarter than these guys. And, and the problem is the technology gap has been growing for so long. You know, someone had to come along at some point and level that playing field. You know, other, otherwise, you can see what the future is going to look like. You know, they, you know the, the high street will crash, but still be available because that space has footfall. But then, you know, people have to log in before they go in. It looks like it's Amazon. It's pretty little things. It's Boohoo. Yeah, it's um, all the online businesses when the, when, the, when, the, when the price for the rents crash so much. And it makes sense for them because online is being too competitive. You know, but we know that future exists. So we can buck the trend now.
Yeah, I think I, I, I'm one of those people that think the days of Main Street or High Street are, you know, pretty much done. I mean, it's almost impossible to to compete, I reckon, with somebody like an Amazon that's getting into every field they can possibly get into. And I'm sure that they're going to develop their own currency. They're going to develop their own digital currency very soon. And that will keep the, their whole financial ecosystem in-house. And then I reckon most people are fucked. <laughs> have, you seen, um, have you seen Cloud Kitchens? Sorry. Do you know what they have you heard of them yet? No. Well, well there's these to, 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 so in in this in this kind of future you're talking about here, right? Yeah. There are these warehouses called cloud kitchens. Now they're popping up over outside every major city. Now the deals are already done, especially with Wendy's over where you are yeah. and Chick-fil-A. So they so what they're doing is they're building these massive warehouses and there's they're all outside London, New York and places like that. And then what they do is they're building these cloud kitchens in warehouses and they're saying to the sole traders, they're saying, Come in our cloud kitchen and make your food, right? Right. So they're eliminating the um, they're eliminating the rental costs, the food preparation costs, the sometimes the ingredients cost, and all the fridge and all the recruitment. So everyone's shutting their high street premises and coming into these kitchens, right? And Uber Eats and uh, DoorDash, yeah. they're delivering these meals, right? So they're right. already displacing the merchant, the rent, the raw ingredients, the food. Yeah. Now, like you say, there's a dystopian future, and everything's being delivered in the high street main USA is stopping. But now, what happens when you've eliminated that value chain and everyone's sitting around the table and goes, Bob, how do we, um, how do we gain any more shareholder value? Because we've only got one person left to disrupt. And Bob goes, you go, who's that? And you go, well, it's the customer. And you're going, hmm, I know what we do. Why don't we do, why don't we do Amazon chicken curry, right? Doesn't sound unreasonable. Well, 70% of the, you know, 70% of the revenue comes from only five dishes. Yes. If we displace those core dishes, why not ship them out? And you might say, well, no one's going to buy an Amazon chicken curry, but then you can call it Uber editions or deliver editions. You know, it's, this is happening already with cloud kitchens where, where the next value chain is disrupting the merchant. So, yeah. you know, in the future, that's, that's where the, and, and, and it's been done before. If you go to like Walmart, you get Walmart's ketchup, right? Yes. And you get Amazon basic exercise step. The yeah. next thing is commercializing the food, right? But. What we see, though, just to caveat that, what we see is when customers think like a technology business and they deploy the correct technology that customers engage with and they focus on longer-term relationships with the customers, now, we've seen customers on our platform absolutely thrive, so we're not actually worried that this could be the genuine future because we've seen how customers can react to this technology, you know, and that's why it's so important to get them thinking in this way, and then they can easily compete. And that's what we're seeing with our customers. Right. It's going to be an interesting future, isn't it? <laughs> Jeez. It is, and there's competition. You've got to stand up for the... And this is the thing, right? You've got to embrace the technology. And that's why it's so interesting, because the tools, the kind of tools we're giving to our customers now, like the order by mobile, because we can get customers that check into their tables in a restaurant, which gives you immediate table adoption. So you should never have a restaurant that's too big. When yeah. the order gets through to the kitchen display, you get the analytics to tell you the moment the order came through, so you know exactly how many chefs you, know, you need to in. And then when you do the rotor, you know who's the highest performing member of staff and who does many upsells and who can take the most transactions. So your menu's automatically dynamically created. So you can rip out all of your management overhead and footprint and really have your restaurant running on these types of technology. And then the difference, the difference is massive. So it's quite exciting for the right types of organizations. And those are the ones that embrace it or just fly. 
like having dynamic integration to Uber Eats and Grubhub, but having your own platform as well. You know, it works for some businesses. And that's the thing. You've, you've got to, if you want to survive, you've got to think like a technology business and pick the right technology platform. You, know, you wouldn't start a 200-man technology business without picking, you know, a Salesforce or an Oracle or a Microsoft Dynamics. Yeah, you wouldn't sure. just go, oh, yeah, let's just use pen and paper. Yeah. You know, and the off-key chance it pans out. Let's not worry about our margins or managing our customers. How far would we get? Yeah. Not so, very far. So why do it with them? Is the risk that with um, these massive kitchens, is the, is the risk that food becomes all very bland and, you know, everybody's offering the same sort of stuff? I think, well, yeah, it does. And, and, and the worst thing is when the VC comes in, you know, you don't get what you want, do you? You get what they make economically viable to via VC money. That's the problem with cloud kitchens. Yeah. But most importantly, the whole point of, you know, I, I guess, you know, listen to Voice America and, and the pitch and the SMEs and people starting a business. I guess the scarier thing for us is what happens if people aren't allowed to participate in the economy? So let's say, for example, someone wants to start a bar or they decide with a friend that they want to start a pizza shop. Yeah. And do we not think that everyone should have the opportunity to follow their dreams and participate in the economy? I think that's really, really important. You know, and that's what kind of America stands for. And I think we're closely aligned with, you know, you, you know, our, our, our company values and the regions that we're in, and we see most countries in the same, that we feel as a business, objectively, everyone should have an opportunity to follow their dreams and participate in the economy and start a business. But I think that realisation could be a problem longer term, you know, if, 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 if this kind of technology is not more available and commonplace, and that's kind of a scary future. Well, I... The the latest figures that I've I've seen is that somewhere around ninety eight point four and ninety eight point five percent of all new businesses fail. So you've got a ninety eight percent failure rate. Now, would you go to a brain surgeon that got ninety eight percent wrong? You probably wouldn't, would you? Um, so no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> so. I think people, you know, many people go out and um, have a go but they don't have the skills. Um, probably they don't have the, the not using education in the in the term of, um, you know, where was Mesopotamia or something. I'm talking about, you know, practical lifetime lifestyle education. Um, but they don't have the education or the skills to be able to, run a business so that's why people like the amazons can get you know amazons if amazon was a country i think it would be i looked at it the other day if amazon was a country it would be bigger than 140 other countries in the world so it's already up there in the top 60 countries in the world in revenue and its revenue is growing I think last year they increased their sales by seventy-two billion or something. Um, their their revenue is growing much faster than any country's GDP. So, um, I think the future we're stuck with is is major companies dominating everything. Yeah, uh, you know, they're, they're definitely dominating everything. You know, to a degree, to a degree, but the end of the day is. When you look at some places, like if you if you if you go to some countries, 
in some town centres. You know, vibrancy in their town centre is really important to them. You know, they're, they're, you see areas that are absolutely thriving. Yeah. You know, it, that is where they kind of embrace that technology and look at, you know, unique things, experiences. So I think there'll always be a demand for really good restaurants and really good shops. You know, and also it's about looking at what, what items you can bring. So let's look at the old, um, if you look at, say, a department store, selling other people's products that doesn't really work anymore because obviously that's just the internet really sure but because because that works but if you look at if you look at really good experiences like really good restaurants really good really good food shops you know or really good things that are selling items that you know are experience led you know or have great multi-channel experiences yes. now we see them as thriving so if you have a really good online experience and you have a great offline experience as well, and they kind of meld the two. That works perfectly, like a really good multi-channel. Yeah. Like vape stores, they're absolutely smashing it. You know, if you think good clothing stores are absolutely smashing it, own brand as well. So if you, they develop own brand and they have a niche, that works really well. All kinds of really good food places, they work well. Cafes are doing great guns. So there are businesses that are really bucking the trend and doing well, but they always have to have some way of engaging their customers and having them come back again, really. So let's let's just talk about uh, EPOS now for a, a minute. You're launching in the United States in Orlando. We've done that. We've been there. Uh, yeah, we've been you, there a you, while. So you're you're open in Orlando. Now I'm in yep. I'm in the entertainment and technology capital of the world, and we sit there and we go, why Orlando? Isn't that just a town full of theme parks? So of all the cities that you could have gone into, like. Austin, Texas, or, you know, if, if you don't take into account the New Yorks and the LAs and the Chicago's, why choose Orlando? You're a yeah, Mickey a Mouse question. freak, right? That's what I mean. I can't wait. I love the rides. What can I tell you? I love, the, I love queuing. I'm a queue freak. No, no, it's a good question. It's a really good question. And, and do you know what, right? So imagine us, we're unfunded, right? We're growing great guns. And we're growing bananas, you know, and it's and it's been a brilliant journey. But we can't. I can't look at what other people are doing. I'm thinking, why are they doing it? Can I do the opposite? Right. So, what we what we kind of looked at is when we went to America. I thought, right. I saw VC companies pumping up, doing the same as what we're doing. So I thought, right. Um, America's a, ma- a massive market. And it's the biggest yeah. market for what we do, and there's loads of businesses that we could help out there, right? But if we don't go there soon, you know, we're not going to be able to go there. So yeah. we jumped. I jumped on a plane. And I went round, looked at everywhere, and I looked at where you are, more near where you are. I looked, at, you know, San Francisco. That's where everyone went. So I took that, went there first. Look around this office, and um, I was like, right, how much is this, this going to cost? Like four thousand square foot, you know, pretty nice office. Unbelievable. And they're like, right, well, fifty-five thousand dollars a month. Yep. I was like, oh, what? Yeah. And then um, had to look for some developers and things. I was like, right, what's the average salary? Thinking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I went back to the hotel and got the calculator out. Well, preferable, obviously, his laptop, right? I had a look. And then, uh, yeah, I'd need to I'd need to get investment to the tune of $10, $20 million just to move there if I wanted to. Yes. So I thought, right, this has got me nuts. We sell cloud software, right? And we could be anywhere in the world, right? So yeah. why be in the most expensive place? So I thought, do you know what? I'll go to a place where there's no competition and, and I don't know the market very well. So why would I go to the market and pitch my tent up, you know, in the most expensive place next to all the most expensive people and with, with, with no HR process or anything, like and no understanding of the market? Why would I go and slide the dragon? So we picked Orlando because it's really out of the way. 
gives a good test of the market. It's in time. It's, it's closer to my time zone as well, so I could really help the team over there if I need to. Because you've got to remember, two hours is quite a lot of time. We're talking yeah, about five true. hours difference. <clears throat> I know. Yes, yeah, so we set up the. So what we did is we went to Orlando, and then um, oh, you know more than most, don't you? Right? Yeah, being there. So we we had a look at, and then we were able to pick the best building, which Chase Plaza. Now. This was a couple of years ago. We now bought our office in the Chase Plaza, so the 20th floor. Yeah. Um, so, so we set routes. And then, um, yeah, I found the office. It was reasonably priced. And there wasn't really that much tech company competition. So we could really set our stall out. This is one for your listeners if they ever expand internationally. We could really set our stall out and get in touch with the mayor's office, Buddy Dyer's mayor's office, and really work with the economic centre and say, hey, we're here in town. You know, we're, we're reasonably big news for Orlando. We want to help the community. You know, get involved. We're here to help and be part of that and create good local jobs. You know, we want this to be an American business, you know, support American businesses and see if we can have a really good impact to the community. One of the first customers we got was on iDrive, like, you know, near Disneyland, five yes. or six branches. Yeah, and that was um, that was really good stories. They'd never really adopted that technology before and they um, made thousands and thousands of, pa- of dollars worth of cost saving. So that was a really good case study. And then the business just snowballed from there, really. But you make a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. We didn't really know what, you know, what 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 to do there. You know, what people expected from us. You know, like you had overtime, which is different to here. You yeah. had like healthcare, which is different. You had like four, you know, four hundred one k and things like that. And yeah, you had all sorts of things right that we didn't know about, and that we didn't know, and cultural differences as well. And 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 that business had a lot of problems starting up. You know, but in Orlando or somewhere away, you know, from the expense of those major pot areas you could afford to make a couple of mistakes because you know it's cheaper like yeah. had you gone to la you made a mistake you'd have been crucified knowing what i know now and that was the first international expansion if you went to la or chicago or new york mate you'd have just got crucified because the competition for tech talent is so fierce it is you know, there's yeah. no way you better do it and i think i think now more than ever you know, if you're selling cloud software and you can sell to anyone, you know, why have the highest cost base? And to me now, it doesn't make any sense. So as I say, when you look at more, we look at more international locations, you know, soon, you know, we're certainly not looking for the most expensive places. We're just looking at places that are really cost effective and that you can make an impact and really get involved in the community. Like if we went to San Francisco, you know, we'd be an unfunded business. You know, would we make any noise? Not at all. We wouldn't. Yeah. We wouldn't be able to make any noise, and we wouldn't be able to get any recruits in either. True. So, expansion plans. Where next? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, we're uh, we've got customers all over the world. So we're looking to we're looking to branch more into Australia. So we've got some customers there. So obviously that's you know, news for you, Bob, because obviously we know where you're from. Yep. Um, <laughs> we're looking at. Yeah, we're looking down there. So that's a great market for us. Um, so we've already got, uh, I think, about 330 customers already using it down there. Right. So, um, yeah, that will be a good place to expand. So we're focused on that in Q1 next year. And then moving on from there, we hope to uh, service Canada and then the uh, South American market. Yeah, starting good with market, the South America. Yeah, it is. And do you know what the added bonus is in Florida, right? 30% of people speak uh, Spanish. Yeah. So in the office... In, ca- in, most of the in guys- California, too, i got to tell you. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. I mean, I don't know that, but most of the guys in the office speak Spanish. So we're yes. like, hey, why not build a Mexican team? And it's like, yeah, we can do that from here. So we're like, brilliant, right? So we can uh, we can start servicing that market. And we've got a good uh, reseller, banking partner we go in with these markets as well. 
So we think that uh, Australia, uh, Canada, and then moving it to South America will be really good for us. So we see those emerging markets as really good territories because because the technology adoption is low and they have same problems as the as our American customers and yeah. British customers and European customers do. You know, they need this technology too. So hopefully we can get it in the hands of those guys. But the, Latin America is incredible. The, the um, Argentinas and the Ecuadors and they're all they're they're all coming ahead in leaps and bounds. Jason, it's a brilliant market. Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. I've enjoyed talking to you. And when you come through LA, make sure that you call me and we'll get together for a bite or a drink or something and um, sounds perfect and you can find more about jason and jason's name is spelt j-a-c-y-n which is kind of cute and you can go to epos e-p-o-s now e-p-o-s-n-o-w dot com and i'll be back with more of the bob pritchard radio show on voice america business after this short break From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 421st Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business Network, broadcasting today from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, the most wonderful city in the world, and where entertainment meets technology. Now, we hear a lot about kids spending too much time online. Now, what are the warning signs? Is screen time really the problem? Researchers have described the negative effects of large amount of time online and the beneficial effects of moderation. We've heard this over and over and over again. For instance, a 2019 study of more than 6,512 to 15 year olds found that more than three hours of social media use a day is linked to depressive symptoms while a 2017 study suggested that moderate online gaming and interaction around an hour a day is protective against mental health system symptoms. So what's the answer? Emerging research shows that it isn't just how much time kids spend online, but how and why they spend time online and that's what impacts their social, emotional and behavioural health. Kids themselves seem to understand the risks of using the internet. In a 2016 survey, half of teenagers said they feel addicted to their mobile device and 72% said they felt the need to immediately respond to texts and social networking messages. I must admit, I've sort of fallen into that. I, I sort of, I, I don't really do social media, but with text messages and emails, I sort of feel a um, 
need to answer them straight away, get right back on it. And uh, there's really no necessity for that, of course. But just because kids are aware of their attachment devices and their internet doesn't mean they're impaired by this use, but some are. This impairment is captured by the concept of problematic internet use, which is called PIU, and this affects up to 10% of children and adolescents. So PIU is assessed with a scale developed for substance abuse and focuses on the intensity and dysfunction of internet use rather than trying to define when use is excessive or too much. So more than 500 young people, ages 7 to 15, participated in the Healthy Brain Network study, and they found links between PIU and depressive disorders and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They also found that PIU is linked to impairment in everyday functioning at home, at school, and with friends, even when accounting for the impairment of a co-occurring mental health disorder. So about 10% of kids are going to have a mental health disorder connected to use of the internet. So similar to drug use, PIU can make symptoms worse for kids who are already vulnerable or who are struggling with a mental health disorder. If a teen has PIU and ADHD, for example, PIU adds an extra level of impairment above and beyond ADHD. Woo. Online habits are problematic when they become compulsive and they're motivated by the desire for mood alteration or related to offline interpersonal problems. Examples could be a teen disappearing into a game to forget about a breakup or using social media to avoid feelings of depression. By the same token, there are a lot of online habits that are beneficial. Many things kids do on their devices are age-appropriate activities that have simply been done offline in the past, like socialising with peers, pursuing hobbies, shopping, listening to music, doing schoolwork, watching TV, etc. They were all done before, just differently. So they can be good. And the therapeutic power of the internet is just now being unlocked. Stony Brook University showed that a single dose of self-administered intervention can significantly reduce youth mental health problems, especially depression. Parents can look out for signs of depression and use parental meditation of your kids' internet use, that is, co-viewing or co-playing and being online together with your kids. It's also a good idea to establish phone-free time before sleep for all family members. I, I do this and I think it's terrific. The real challenge, not only phone-free, but internet-free. The real challenge is not to let caution blind us to the incredible potential of the online world to help our kids learn and grow and even help themselves. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space, get out of the way and let somebody who wants to succeed get past. Don't obstruct them. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible 
than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. Go down the street. You can see thousands of them. Ordinary people. And if you're always going to be ordinary, you're always going to be normal. You're always going to be boring. You'll never know how amazing it can be if you take a chance. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. See you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.